You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. This morning, we have the privilege of having James Perot with us. He is a missionary, a university chaplain, and the campus ministry director of UCM at UBC Okanagan. He's passionate about building Christian community and equipping young adults to make disciples and discover their missional vocation. He's married to Andrea, and they have two boys, and they recently returned from a pilgrimage to Israel. James, come and join us, and I'd like to pray for you as you come. Let's pray. God, I thank you for James, and I thank you for his willingness to be here this morning and to bring to us what you have spoken to him about his reasons to sing. I pray that you'd use his words to speak to our hearts, and again, that you would do the work among us that you desire to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, James. Thank you, Michelle. Well, good morning, church. How are you guys doing on this very, very hot week that we're experiencing? Staying cool out there? Um, Yeah, Keith uh, invited me to come share, and in this series that you're doing, Reasons to Sing, and I know you guys have looked at things like creation and hope and knowledge and beauty. Um, For myself, the reason I have to sing is because Jesus saved me, right? Um, Shouldn't that be the reason we all have reason to sing? And the reason he saved me is because he is all about mission. Mission, his sentness, his outward orientation, that describes his essential nature and character. God doesn't love mission. God doesn't do mission. God doesn't have a heart for mission. God doesn't prefer mission. God doesn't wish that you would do mission. He doesn't wish that this church would, that that there'd be more mission. God is mission, right? And therefore, if we are God's people and if this is a gathering of God's people, then the church is meant to be mission, right? Amen? And that makes me sing. Um, I have a passage uh, that I'd like to start with this morning. comes out of Matthew chapter 12, and it says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mothers and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Um, This morning, I want to talk to you about this missionality aspect of God's character and nature. And I've titled this message, A Jesus-Shaped Family. Um, I am married, and I have two young boys. And on my bucket list was to go and walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And uh, this past spring, um, I was gifted a sabbatical 
It had been nine years since my last sabbatical. We were kind of hoping to do it, and then COVID hit, and then we had to bump it a year, and then bump it another year. You know how that goes? That COVID thing, hey? Um, and so we got to go uh, this spring in, uh, back in, in May on the footsteps of Jesus. So my wife and I, three weeks, imagine three weeks away from your kids. It was magical. I mean, we were in the Holy Lands, but we were also three weeks away from our kids. Um, it was wonderful. And, you know, I had this on my heart to go um, for years, and I knew that um, when we'd go, we would see so many things. Let me, let me give you a few little snapshots. Um, this is uh, Qumran, where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, this is us floating in the Dead Sea. It's kind of like you have to do it when you go, you know. It's a crazy experience. It's like floating in oil. It's kind of gross, but kind of cool. Um, I got to renew my baptismal vows in the River Jordan, like right where Jesus himself was baptized. Very cool. Um, this is the Wadi Celts, where probably Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, this is us on the Sea of Galilee. We got to kind of boat around on it and kind of experience that it sort of feels like Lake Okanagan, to be honest. Um, it's bigger, but it uh, feels kind of around the same size. Um, here's a first century boat that they discovered. Here are the steps to the Temple Mount. Got to walk those steps. Jesus walked those steps into the Temple Mount over and over, and we got to walk in those footsteps. And here's our group. We went with a group. Um, we went with uh, Bob and Pam Rawling. I know in the past he's done some teaching here, so he leads these trips. Highly recommend going with them. Um, and here we are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And these both places represent where Jesus was crucified and then where he was buried. So, I mean, I have like 3,000 photos. Do you want to keep going? <laughs> I, I took a lot of photos. My wife was like, why are you taking so many photos? And I was like, because I like slideshows. Um, I'll stop there, though. I just wanted to give you a taste of what we recently experienced and partly what continues to make me sing right now, uh, remembering this time in Israel. Um, I knew that going would help us, help me, you know, have a visual map, like on the, on the back of my hand, of, of the geography of where Jesus lived and where he walked and where he did ministry. I knew that it would give me a better understanding of the cultural context, like actually walking and seeing these places. But what I didn't expect is how it would help clarify for me the missional strategy that Jesus used to seek and save the lost. Like, if you were, were going to teach someone how to pray the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray, where would you turn in Scripture? If you were to teach someone how to pray like Jesus taught us to pray, where would you turn in Scripture? The Psalms, yes, for sure. What about very specifically? Remember when his disciples came and said, teach us how to pray? The Lord's Prayer, right? We should have that on the back of our hands, right? The Lord's Prayer. It should be memorized, should be on the back of our hands. If we're trying to teach our kids or to disciple someone, probably should start there. Psalms also, though, great. Um, okay, how about worship? If we were to teach someone how to worship, like Jesus taught, where might you turn? 
probably lots of ideas. For me, I think of when he was talking to the woman at the well, and he taught her about worship, and he said that we need to worship in spirit and in truth. Well, what about mission? What about how to be on mission? What about how to go about and evangelize? Where would you turn? What passage is on the back of your hand? Well, this morning I want to give you that passage, and I, and I hope you leave today with that on the back of your hand, that when someone asks you, you know that you can start right there. So this morning, I want to look at three things that will help us understand um, this great commission that God gives us. First, we're going to look at a historical context of understanding the idea of family, of, of oikos in the first century. And then we'll look at that missional strategy. We'll look at that passage in, in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 10. And then lastly, what I want to do is actually show you how Jesus used that strategy himself to find his disciples and call them to follow him. And we see that in Luke chapter 4 and 5, and we see that in John chapter 1. And that's because Jesus actually lived a very predictable pattern in his life. He gave us a model in his own life that we could model our lives after. And that's something that I saw while we were in Israel. And this morning, I want to help us see. So first, let's talk about houses, okay? We need to talk about oikos. This is the Greek word for house or household is the word oikos. And the biggest cultural difference we need to understand when reading about the life of Jesus is the difference in the role and the nature of the household or the family. I don't know about you, but when I read scripture, I kind of just read the words in English and I imagine what I experience today. So when I read the word family, I think mom, dad, two kids, right? When I read the word house, I think kind of like my house, right? But what we need to do is sometimes we need to try to reimagine what that looks like in the first century. People in Jesus' time lived in multi-generational extended families. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings, their spouses, their kids. They lived in extended families. And this extended family was typically built around a family business. So for many, their household, their oikos, would include family friends, business partners, employees, all living together. Now, the two primary reasons that oikos has looked like this was for provision and protection. And the architecture of an oikos reflected this need for provision and protection. So for protection, there was one outer main wall made of stone, no windows, it enclosed a series of rooms, small rooms, facing inward to an open courtyard. And the wall just had one single door that you could get in. It acted like a main gate. And you basically, your family had a little family fortress in a way. For provision, an oikos is also designed for the family business. The open courtyard created that space for that work to be done. So imagine it's a fishing family. Well, in that courtyard, that's where they, the nets would be repaired. That's where the stone weights would be carved to attach to the, to the nets. That's where the fish were cleaned, and they were probably dried on the rooftops. That's where you'd come and go to go fishing and come and go to sell your fish. Are you getting the picture? An oikos protected the oikos, and the oikos provided for the oikos. 
In other words, the oikos lived for the sake of the oikos. But what happens when your oikos rejects you? Oh, I forgot to show these. Here's a couple actual photos of, of the remaining stones of a household in Capernaum. So this is what it kind of looks like. You can, see, you can see the gate in the top left-hand side. <laughs> so in Luke chapter 4, right after Jesus' baptism and temptation, it seems that Jesus has this intention of returning to Nazareth. And in verse 16, we're told that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. He's invited to read. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls this long scroll, finds the place where he wants to read from, and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. He sits down and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boom, mic drop. The whole place is silent. They're like, whoa. Aren't you like that this morning? Isn't that an amazing passage? Up there, yes, okay. So you have to understand, they've been longing. They've been waiting. They've been, they've been enduring for centuries now of oppression. They are currently laboring under the crushing taxation of the Herodians. And maybe, they've been wondering, maybe this cousin of John the Baptist could he be the one? Some of them are remembering the shepherds, right? Some are remembering these rumors of angels and messages about this child, right? Maybe they're thinking, could Jesus be the one? And they're amazed. They're like, wow, he just proclaimed the kingdom. But, but Jesus didn't stop there, did he? If he had, he probably would have had his social card packed out. People would want to hear him. They'd invite him back to speak and speak some more, right? But no. Jesus begins, begins to unpack what it meant when he said that this great promise was starting to be fulfilled right now in and through him. And he uses two biblical examples to, to explain to whom the good news will include. And he uses the story of the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. And you're all, you remember those stories, right? <laughs> Who? Widow of Zarephath? What? Naaman the Syrian? Well, the important thing to know is those are two individuals who are outside of Israel. Those are Gentiles. Jesus names two people and two instances where God extends his grace and love outside of the people of Israel. And he says, to them, that's to who this good news is for. And his audience immediately knows those stories and they immediately react, right? They say blasphemy. They say, no way, Jesus. No, 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 we're the people of Israel. We're the promised people. We're who God's supposed to work in. What are you talking about that it's, it's outside of us? And they drag him to the edge of town 
and they intend to throw him off a cliff, right? That's a shocking story. Jesus comes to his hometown, preaches in the synagogue, and they attempt to murder him. Now, that sounds like mob mentality, right? You're thinking, wow, I can't believe they would do that. We would, we would never do that, right? Mission Creek, you guys would never, never do that, right? Well, they're actually just following the rabbinical interpretation of how to deal with a heretic, right? But Jesus mysteriously managed to simply walk through the crowd. Now, let's pause for a second. There's probably a lot of questions in your mind. You're thinking, why would they do that? And, uh, you, know, who, who would, you know, how did Jesus simply walk through the crowd? And did no one have the guts to push him off the cliff or right? How did Jesus walk through the crowd? They seemed quite angry. Did he use some kind of Jedi mind trick? I'm not the heretic you're looking for. Those are all great questions, but the real question we should be asking is where is his oikos? Where is his family? Right? We just took time to learn about family. Jesus is sitting in his household synagogue who would he be sitting with? His family, and not just his brothers and his mother, but ex remember, extended family. These guys were carpenters. It's not a ton of wood in Israel, so they, carpenter also means stonemason. They worked a lot with stone. These guys are big guys. Where are they? Where is his family? Remember, what, what's the two things? What's a oikos for? For provision and for protection. Where are they in this moment? Jesus is in his hometown, and nobody stands up. So in this scene in Luke chapter 4, Jesus learns that not only are the people of Nazareth rejecting this messianic vision, but even his own oikos too. So where is he to head? Where is he to go? The text tells us that he leaves Nazareth and heads to Capernaum. Why? Why Capernaum? Why does he go to Capernaum next? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at Jesus' missional strategy. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 10 because it's the most clear one. In Luke chapter 9, he gives this missional strategy to the 12 disciples. In Luke chapter 10, he gives the same strategy to the sending of the 22. And he says this, whatever house you enter, say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. So, so peace, he says, go find people of peace. So peace, the word in Hebrew, shalom. While we were there, we heard it all the time. You know, just like here, we say, what's up? How are you doing? There they say, shalom. It's a greeting. And Jesus is saying, go and find people who will greet you, who will befriend you. Go find friends. But then notice he says, peace to this house. So again, what's in our brain? We're thinking first century or are we thinking today? Think first century. So this isn't an individualistic mission. Jesus isn't sending them to go find individuals. When I was younger, I was taught like evangelism is like find the person next to you on the bus or in the, in the plane who's trapped and they can't go anywhere. 
get that, you know, that's the person you share the gospel with, right? Jesus is saying, go find households. I'm actually a product of that strategy. Um, my mom, when she was, you know, when I was a teen, she had a renewal in her faith. We joined a church. Youth leaders stepped into my life. You know, elders in the church invested in my life. Farmers invited me to kind of work on their farm and invest in me. And I realized it took a whole household to raise me up to be a, a Christian. That's what the church is meant to be, right? A household working together, a church, a family. And then he says, so he says this thing, son of peace. That's, that's a first century idiom that says, that means people who receive and reciprocate peace, okay? And he says, go and find those kind of people, the people who are receptive. So if they're not receptive, don't worry about it. Shake the dust off your feet. Find people who are receptive. I often was told too, like if, if people aren't receptive, then you gotta try harder. Find the right, you know, book for them. You know, email them, pester them, don't give up on them, <laughs> right? Jesus says, go find people who are open and receptive, right? And then he says, remain in this house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move from house to house. Wherever you enter a town and its people receive you, eat what is set before you. Eat and drink. Sharing a meal in that culture was a covenantal act. It meant that you're becoming friends. Um, we use this strategy on the campus all the time. Um, free food is the love language of students, okay? We, we do a pizza, we give away free pizza once a month, our attendance goes up, it's like magic, it's amazing, you know? So can you get behind this strategy? Go find friends, find people who are receptive and open, share a meal with them. And in eating a meal together, Jesus is teaching the disciples to find out if their new friends were not only willing to welcome them, but also willing to serve them. When you find people who serve you, that's a sign that they're open, that they're leaning in. And he, then he says, heal the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Is that the next slide? Yeah. Heal the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So two things in there, right? Heal, demonstrate the kingdom, and tell them, proclaim the kingdom. So it's a show and tell. Do you remember show and tell? <laughs> show and tell. These things go together. We can't do one without the other, right? I know a lot of people on the campus, they're like, hey, you should just like hand out all these tracks and just, you know, blast the campus with information. And, but we can't. We can't tell without showing. And we can't show without telling either. So we can't do just humanitarian acts and, and say, great, that's what God's called us to do. No, the church is meant to do both, both and. We have a program on the campus called Red Frogs. I know I've talked about it in the past with this church. It's a harm reduction program. It's just our way of trying to serve students on the campus. So we go into parties, we walk people home, we keep them safe, we hand out water. But we're always asked, why are you doing this? man, I can't believe you got students cleaning up, you know, walking people home and spending time with people puking their guts out. Why do you do this? And then we get the opportunity to tell. 
When you show, you often get the opportunity to tell. That's how Jesus did it, right? Over and over again, you look at the Gospels and you'll see that often Jesus first shows and then he tells. All right, so this is the missional strategy that Jesus gives his disciples. But the last thing I want to do with you is to bring this all home. I want to show you how Jesus actually uses this strategy in his own calling of the disciples, finding and calling the disciples. Have you guys ever read the Bible chronologically? I'm, I'm, I typically just kind of get into a book and I just read the book through. I've never, I've never gotten one of those. I think they even sell like chronological Bibles that you can kind of, they try to pair it up, the Gospels at least, into a chronology. It's amazing when you do. You'll see a bunch of things that you never saw before. That's what happened to me on this trip in Israel as we walked in the footsteps chronologically of the footsteps of Jesus. I suddenly started to see how Jesus used this strategy to find the disciples. John chapter 1 fills us in on this. Um, Often we read the synoptics first. We go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Jesus calls the disciples at the shoreline, and they say, yes, I'll follow you. That happens in all the synoptics, and you think, wow, okay. Jesus just kind of walked up to them and told them to follow him, and they just did. That's amazing. But if you get to John chapter 1, you find out the backstory. We're going to read through this real quick. The next day, John was standing with his two disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here's the the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? They're interested. Rabbi, where are you staying? They're showing interest, right? And he says, come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Wink, wink, nod, nod from the author. That means that they spent the day with him. They probably ate a meal together in that time. They might even stayed over a night if it's that late in the afternoon. So one of those two that heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Okay, so we're told there's two disciples. Who's the other guy? Doesn't say, but it's John's gospel. So it's probably John. So John and Andrew are the first two disciples to kind of lean in and interested in Jesus. And then it says, he first found his brother Simon. So Andrew finds Simon, a.k.a. Peter. And he says to him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Um. So already we're starting to see that Jesus, even before he calls them, he's finding these disciples who are people of peace to him, who are interested in him. But Jesus is acting as a person of peace to them first. He's acting, he's welcoming them into where where he is. Uh, Jesus is, um, uh, they listen to Jesus, right? Jesus serves them. He offers them friendship. And by their response, they're showing they're interested. The next day, he meets two more Galileans who were also down in Judea. Philip from Bethsaida, which is the the fishing town east of Capernaum. And then they find Nathaniel, who's from Cana, which is west of Capernaum. And Jesus does the same, similar invitation into his life of those two disciples. So already we're we're at five guys. Do you remember that burger place? 
on the west side. Anyone go there? I really love burgers. And then it closed. Uh, but five guys. Jesus has already found five guys even before the stories we read in the synoptics. But now Jesus wants to know, will they reciprocate? Will they serve him? So in John's gospel, Jesus next heads to north to Galilee, to Cana, and then on to Nazareth. And the gospels are silent on whether, whether or not those five guys return with Jesus, but it's interesting that then Jesus goes to, his next stop was Cana, which is Nathaniel's hometown, and then Capernaum, which is the town of Simon and Andrew and John, and then he goes to his town. So it kind of sounds like he's heading back, so he's down south being baptized, then he heads north, and he kind of drops off the boys on the way, right? And then he finally gets to his town, Nazareth. And then he gets to Nazareth, and he is rejected. So our big question is, why Capernaum? Why, after he's rejected, he then goes to Capernaum? Well, we just answered that. He found people of peace in Capernaum. He found these, these, these young lads, these, you know, these wannabe disciples who are interested. And Jesus decides to go back and see, will they reciprocate? So the text tells us, he returns to Capernaum. This is that synagogue that Jesus then teaches in, in Luke chapter 4. And it says, he went down to, to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astounded by his teaching because he spoke with authority, kind of the opposite of his hometown, right? And then, he's, um, oops. And then what happens next is after he teaches, um, always they take a visiting rabbi to, um, to someone's home for dinner, okay? After a visiting rabbi kind of hangs out, a leading family, either the, the, the lead rabbi or another leading family, invite them over for dinner to show their appreciation. And so as the service ends, who invites them over for lunch? Simon. And Simon's household invites them over. And Simon's household is just like two blocks from the synagogue. We walked it. It's like a minute, two-minute walk from there. It's very close by. Simon's household was probably a, a kind of a, 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 an affluent. They probably had a significant fishing business. They had one of the larger homes in the town of Capernaum. And what we see is that Simon and Andrew reciprocate by inviting Jesus into their synagogue. But what happens when he gets there? His mother is sick. So he stands over her, he rebukes the fever, and it left her, and immediately she got up and began to serve him. Now, I've heard lots of jokes about this passage, you know, uh, but now that we've read about Jesus' missional strategy, we understand, right? He heals her, and then they begin to serve him. They're receiving Jesus. Now, what's the, what comes next seems to be the largest test of their friendship so far. Like I said earlier, your oikos is about provision and protection. You don't just invite anybody into your oikos. But after dinner, we're told, as the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought to him, and they, lay, they brought, brought them to him, and they laid out his hands on each of them and cured them. 
Demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Whoa, his household is full. In the Middle East, they're an honor-shame culture. Bringing people of good standing into your household, like the, you know, the, the rabbi that just preached an amazing sermon, woof, bring him into your household, that brings honor to your household. But equally, bringing people of, who would act shamefully would bring shame onto your household. And what does Jesus do? He invites everyone in. The text says even someone who is demon-possessed. Jesus, what's happening here, guys? Do you get this? That Jesus is laying the foundation for a whole new understanding of what family is meant to be. Jesus is demonstrating a new kind of family, a new kind of oikos, a family that is outward-focused, a family on mission. And he gave them this vision of what God's kingdom is meant to look like because everyone is included. Everyone is meant to be a part of God's family, right? Amen? And the house of Simon and Andrew would serve as Jesus' home base for mission. This isn't just a one-time occurrence, but now you read through the Gospels and you'll start to see it. You'll be like, oh, that was Simon and Andrew's house, right? This is where they would heal the sick, where they'd welcome the outcasts, where they would train the disciples and send them out. One time a man is brought through the roof. That's this house. Jesus teaches in the missional strategy here and he sends them out from here. This becomes his base of operations. Now, Back to that passage that we began with, because that's where this story, the setting for this story is as well, in that house, right? Both, both Matthew and Mark record that Jesus' mother and brother now travel from, to Capernaum from Nazareth. They're hearing about this. They're hearing about all these miracles. Remember, they had rejected him, but they come, and they're thinking, man, Jesus, this is kind of crazy, and when they arrive, that courtyard is full, so full that they can't quite get into the gate. So they pass the word through the gate. They're standing at the gate, and they pass the word into it. And Jesus responds, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he points to those in the courtyard, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. What a scandalous response. But Jesus makes this declaration and he makes it clear. He's establishing a new way of being family. Not just biological family, but spiritual family. Not exclusive, but inclusive. Not a family just set on providing and protecting its own, but a family focused on seeking and saving the lost. Jesus is showing us all what it's meant what it's meant to be to live as an extended spiritual family on mission. And, and this is the goal for this church. This is the goal for our mission on the campus. This is what we're trying to do on campus, is we're trying to be an extended spiritual family for students in the season they're, that, they're on, that they're at university. I always tell people that, do you know that, that, that over 75% of UBCO students aren't from here? About 25 are, are local, 25 are from BC, 25 are from the rest of Canada, and about another 25 are, represent the 120 nations across the world. So for us, 
Our mission on the campus is to create a spiritual home for these 75% of those students. I think this year, I think they're clocking in somewhere around 12,000 students up there. 75% of them aren't from here. Um, last year at this time in September, we finally were able to do a camp retreat again. And um, I want to tell you about a quick story about this student. His name's Chani Du. Um, two years ago, during the pandemic, he reached out to us online when, when school started. And he, he said, I'm interested in Christianity and I want to learn more and I'm about to start my first year online. Unfortunately, I'm not in Kelowna, but I want to learn more. And my brain went, person of peace, right? Someone who's interested, someone who's leaning in. And so I said to him, I said, you know what? I, I, I said, let's, let's have a chat. We did a Zoom chat. And I said, hey, you know, the best way to learn about Christianity is there's, you know, there's a number of ways, but here's, here's three things. One, read the Bible. He said, yep, I've already started doing that. And I said, great. And I said, two, I said, get in community. So get in, a, get in a group. Get in a small group or Bible study. We can help you do that. I can actually help you get in a group with students who are going to UBC. He said, great, I want to do that. I said, awesome, and he did that. And I said, third thing is, find a mentor. Find someone who can invest in you, someone who can disciple you. And he said, sure, I'm open to that. And I said, and I hooked him up with a student, this guy in the picture, Victor, who's two years older than him, in the exact same program, and I thought, maybe he can mentor him. And they've become great friends. And basically, we invited him to become a follower. Would you do that? Would you be mentored? Would you be discipled? So he went from a person of peace, someone who's interested, to being a follower. So anyways, fast forward to, uh, to September. He finally comes in person. First time I see him in person, I'm like, my goodness, I've known you for a year, but I've never seen you in person. Isn't that such a weird thing, this COVID thing? Man, knew him for a whole year. And uh, he comes to our camp retreat, and in the middle of the retreat, Saturday morning, Saturday morning over breakfast, he says, James, I want to be baptized. Can we do that? I said, sure, of course you can. And he's like, I want to be baptized with this group because this is where I found Jesus. This is who's discipling me. I said, awesome, let's do that. So we baptized him at that retreat. Um, and there he is with his, with, his, with his oikos, right? With his spiritual family. And we prayed for him after he was baptized to re receive the spirit. Oh man, he, I remember this moment. He was just weeping in the arms of his mentor there, Victor. Um, this is us on the campus. This is a little photo of us, how we gather. We gather on Thursday nights and we worship. Uh, Student-led, we try to equip students to, to lead the ministry. We always break into small groups afterwards and we have a time to just connect and meet with students and hear more. And we just empower students to go. So here's a little picture of one of our students on the right and she's, she's helping this next leader on the left there uh, get equipped. And then what's so funny, I took this photo of the two of them, but in the background you can see there's actually two more students doing the exact same thing. I was like, whoa, inception. Um, <laughs> so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be a Jesus-shaped family on mission on the campus. Let me close with this. The good news of this passage is that we can discover what true family is in Jesus. If we follow him, if we be a disciple, if we obey the will of God, we will discover the qualities of a Jesus-shaped family. 
He won't ever forsake us. He won't, his enduring love knows no limits. His everlasting grace abounds. And when Jesus says, look, here are my mother and my brothers. Here's my family. Don't you want him pointing at you? Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for this community, this family here, this spiritual family. God, I pray that they would take up that call, that mission, to, to let, let them be a family on mission. Let them be a spiritual family that is looking for people of peace, that are looking for people who are interested in you, Jesus. God, on this topic of what makes us sing, God, what makes us sing is that we love that you are a God of mission and that you include us, that you want to use us, that you, that you give us the privilege of being a part of that. So God, might you just bless this community. Might they be a family that is ever opening up their doors, they're, they're extending this family, that they're inviting others in, that they're extending the love and grace that they've received from you to others. Might we all be that in Jesus' name, amen.